Prefaces and Introduction to a History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Christensen. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1, by John Bagnall Burry. Prefaces and Introduction Preface to New Edition The excavations of Sir Arthur Evans at Knossos began in the year in which the first edition of this History of Greece appeared, 1900. His amazing discoveries there, followed and supplemented by the work of other explorers on many other prehistoric sites in Crete, have transformed our knowledge of the Aegean civilization of the second millennium, and placed in a new focus the problems of early Greece. In consequence of these discoveries, and of other researches, among which I may mention especially Professor Ridgway's Early Age of Greece and Mr. Leaf's Troy, it has been necessary to rewrite the greater part of Chapter 1. An account of Cretan civilization is included. The view that the pre-Achaean inhabitants of Greece were not Greeks, which it seems to me no longer possible to maintain, is abandoned, and the Trojan War is recognized to be an historical event. Outside Chapter 1, a few minor changes have been made. I need only mention that the accounts of the battles of Salamis and Plataea have been partly rewritten. J.B.B. End of Preface to New Edition Preface to First Edition In determining the form and character of this book, I have been prompted by two convictions. One is that while, in writing a history based on the original authorities and from one's own personal point of view, it is natural and certainly easier to allow it to range into several volumes, its compression into a single volume often produces a more useful book. In the case of a new history of Greece, it seemed worthwhile to undertake the more laborious task. The other opinion which I venture to hold is this. So far as history is concerned, those books which are capable of enlisting the interest of mature readers seem to me to be best also for informing younger students. Therefore, while my aim is to help education, this book has in view a wider circle than those merely who are going through a course of school or university discipline. It was a necessary consequence of the limitations of space which I imposed upon myself that literature and art, philosophy and religion, should be touched upon only when they directly illustrate, or come into some specially intimate connection with, the political history. It will be found that I have sometimes interpreted this rule liberally, but it is a rule which could be the more readily adopted, as so many excellent works dealing with the art, literature, and philosophy are now easily accessible. The interspersion, in a short political history, of a few unconnected chapters dealing, as they must deal, inadequately with art and literature, seems useless and inartistic. The existence of valuable handbooks, within the reach of all, on constitutional antiquities, has enabled me, in tracing the development of the Athenian state, or touching on the institutions of other cities, to omit minor details. The reader must also seek elsewhere for the sagas of Hellas, for a geographical description of the country, for the topography of Athens. On the topography of Athens, and on the geography of Greece, he will find excellent works to his hand. There are two cautions which I must convey to the reader, and it will be most convenient to state them here. The first concerns the prehistoric age, 
which is the subject of the first chapter of this work. The evidence gathered by the researches of archaeologists on the coasts and islands of the Aegean during the last twenty years, as to the civilization of prehistoric Greece, brought historians face to face with a set of new problems, for which no solutions that can be regarded as certain have yet been discovered. The ablest investigators differ widely in their views. Fresh evidence may at any hour upset tentative conclusions and force us to seek new interpretations of the data. The excavations which are now to be undertaken in Crete, at last restored to its own Greek world, may lead to unexpected results that may transform the whole question. Thus, prehistoric Greece cannot be treated satisfactorily except by the method of discussion, and in a work like this, since discussion lies outside its scope, a writer can only describe the main features of the culture which excavation has revealed, and state with implied reserve the chief general conclusions which he considers probable as to the correlation of the archaeological evidence with the literary traditions of the Greeks. He must leave much, vague and indefinite. The difficulty of the problems is increased by the circumstance that the literary evidence concerning the doings and goings of the early Greek folks is largely embedded in myth and harder to extract from its bed than buried walls or tombs from their coverings of earth. The importance of the pre-Greek inhabitants of Greece, the mixed ethnical character of the historical Greeks, the comparatively early date of the Ionian migration, the continuity of Aegean civilization, the relation of the so-called Mycenaean culture to the culture described by Homer, these are the main points which I have been content to emphasize. The second caution applies to all histories of Greece that have been written since the days of Ephorus. The early portion of Greek history, which corresponds to the 7th and 6th centuries BC, is inevitably distorted and placed in a false perspective through the strange limitations of our knowledge. For at that time, as well as in the centuries immediately preceding, which are almost quite withdrawn from our vision, the cities of the western coast of Asia Minor formed the most important and enlightened part of the Hellenic world, and of those cities in the days of their greatness we have only some disconnected glimpses. Our knowledge of them hardly begins till Persia advances to the Aegean and they sink to a lower place in Greece. Thus, the pages in which the Greeks of Asia should have the supreme place are monopolized by the development of Elder Greece, and the false impression is produced that the history of Hellas in the 7th and 6th centuries consisted merely, or mainly, of the histories of Sparta and Athens and their immediate neighbors. Darkness also envelops the growth of the young Greek communities of Italy and Sicily during the same period. The wrong, unfortunately, cannot be righted by a recognition of it. Athens and Sparta and their fellows abide in possession. Les absents ont toujours tort. In the notes and references at the end of the volume, I have indicated obligations to modern research on special points. Here I must acknowledge my more general obligations to the histories of Grote, Freeman, History of Sicily, Buzold, Belloch, E. Meyer, Isictides Alterums, and Droysen. Though other histories of high reputation, both English and foreign, have been respectfully consulted, it is to those mentioned that I am chiefly indebted. But I owe perhaps a deeper debt to the writings of one who, though he has never written a formal history of Greece, has made countless invaluable contributions to its study, Professor U. von Willemowitz Mollendorf. 
With some of his conclusions I do not agree, but I would express here deep sympathy with his methods and admiration for the stimulating virtue of his writings. Several friends have been good enough to help me. The book has had the advantage of the criticisms of a master of the subject, Mr. Mahaffey, who most kindly read through the proof sheets. The first chapter is enriched by a small map of the Mycenaean sites of Crete, marked for me by Mr. J. L. Myers. Mr. Cecil Smith assisted me in the matter of illustrations taken from antiquities in the British Museum, and Professor Percy Gardner superintended the preparation of some photographs from busts in the Oxford galleries. All the plans, and many of the maps, including Bactria and northwestern India, were roughly sketched by myself and then properly drawn by the skillful cartographers Messrs. Walker and Botaw. In the case of a plan or map that is not current, I have stated in the list of illustrations to what work I am indebted. Nearly all the reproductions of coins are from coins in the British Museum. My obligations to Messrs. R. and R. Clark will be understood by those who have had the good fortune to have had works printed at their press. J. B. Burry End of Preface to First Edition Introductory, Greece and the Aegean The rivers and valleys, the mountains, bays, and islands of Greece will become familiar as our story unfolds itself, and we need not enter here into any minute description. But it is useful at the very outset to grasp some general features which went to make the history of the Greeks what it was, and what otherwise it could not have been. The character of their history is so intimately connected with the character of their dwelling-places that we cannot conceive it apart from their land and seas. Of Spain, Italy, and Illyricum, the three massive promontories of which southern Europe consists, Illyricum in the east would have closely resembled Spain in the west if it had stopped short at the north of Thessaly and if its offshoot Greece had been sunk beneath the waters. It would then have been no more than a huge block of solid land, at one corner almost touching the shores of Asia, as Spain almost touches the shores of Africa. But Greece, its southern continuation, has totally different natural features, which distinguish it alike from Spain, the solid square, and Italy, the solid wedge, and make the eastern basin of the Mediterranean strikingly unlike the western. Greece gives the impression of a group of nesses and islands. Yet in truth, it might have been as solid and unbroken a block of continent, on its own smaller scale, as the massive promontory from which it juts. Greece may be described as a mountainous headland, broken across the middle into two parts by a huge rift, and with its whole eastern side split into fragments. We can trace the ribs of the framework, which convulsion of nature bent and shivered, for the service, as it turns out, of the human race. The mountains which form Thessaly's eastern barrier, Olympus, Ossa, and Pelion, the mountains of the long islands of Euboea, and the string of islands which seem to hang to Euboea as a sort of tail, should have formed a perpetual mountainous chain, the rocky eastern coast of a solid promontory. Again, the ridges of Pindus which divide Thessaly from Epirus find their prolongation in the heights of Timphestrus and Corax, and then, in an oblique southeastward line, deflected from its natural direction, the chain is continued in Parnassus, Helicon, and Cithiron, in the hills of Attica, and in the islands which would be part of Attica if Attica had not dipped beneath the waters. In the same way the mountains of the Peloponnesus are a continuation of the mountains of Epirus. Thus restoring the framework in our imagination and raising the dry land from the sea, we reconstruct, as the Greece that might have been, 
a lozenge of land, ribbed with chains of hills stretching southeastward far out into the Aegean. If nature had given the Greeks a land like this, their history would have been entirely changed, and by imagining it we are helped to understand how much they owed to the accidents of nature. In a land of capes and deep bays and islands it was determined that waterways should be the ways of their expansion. They were driven, as it were, into the arms of the sea. The most striking feature of continental Greece is the deep gulf which has cleft it asunder into two parts. The southern half ought to have been an island, as its Greek name, the island of Pelops, suggests, but it holds on to the continent by a narrow bridge of land at the eastern extremity of the great cleft. Now this physical feature had the utmost significance for the history of Greece, and its significance may be viewed in three ways, if we consider the existence of the dividing gulf, the existence of the isthmus, and the fact that the isthmus was at the eastern and not at the western end. 1. The double effect of the gulf itself is clear at once. It let the sea in upon a number of folks who would otherwise have been inland mountaineers, and increased enormously the length of the seaboard of Greece. Further, the gulf constituted southern Greece a world by itself, so that it could be regarded as a separate land from northern Greece, an island practically, with its own insular interests. 2. But if the island of Pelops had been in very truth an island, if there had been no isthmus, there would have been from the earliest ages direct and constant intercourse between the coasts which are washed by the Aegean and those which are washed by the Ionian Sea. The eastern and western lands of Greece would have been brought nearer to one another, when the ships of trader or warrior, instead of tediously circumnavigating the Peloponnesus, could sail from the eastern to the western sea through the middle of Greece. The disappearance of the isthmus would have revolutionized the roads of traffic and changed the centers of commerce, and the wars of Grecian history would have been fought out on other lines. How important the isthmus was may perhaps be best illustrated by a modern instance on a far mightier scale. Remove the bridge which joins the southern to the northern continent of America, and contemplate the changes which ensue in the routes of trade and in the conditions of naval warfare in the great oceans of the globe. 3. Again, if the bridge which attached the Peloponnesus to the mainland had been at the western end of the gulf, the lands along either shore of the inlet would have been accessible easily, and sooner, to the commerce of the Aegean and the Orient. The civilization of northwestern Greece might have been more rapid and intense, and the history of Boeotia and Attica, unhooked from the Peloponnesus, would have run a different course. The character of the Aegean Basin was another determining condition of the history of the Greeks. Strewn with countless islands, it seems meant to promote the intercourse of folk with folk. The Cyclades, which, as we have seen, belong properly to the framework of the Greek continent, pass imperceptibly into the isles which the Asiatic coast throws out, and there is formed a sort of island bridge inviting ships to pass from Greece to Asia. The western coast of Lesser Asia belongs, in truth, more naturally to Europe than to its own continent. It soon became part of the Greek world, and the Aegean might be considered then as the true center of Greece. The west side of Greece, too, was well furnished with good harbors, and though not as rich in bays and islands as the east, was a favorable scene for the development of trade and civilization. It was no long voyage from Corsera to the heel of Italy, 
and the inhabitants of western Greece had a whole world open to their enterprise. But that world was barbarous in early times, and had no civilizing gifts to offer, whereas the peoples of the eastern seaboard looked towards Asia, and were drawn into contact with the immemorial civilizations of the Orient. The backward condition of western, as contrasted with eastern Greece in early ages, did not depend on the conformation of the coast, but on the fact that it faced away from Asia, and in later days we find the Ionian Sea a busy scene of commerce and lined with prosperous communities which are fully abreast of Greek civilization. The northern coast of Africa, confronting and challenging the three peninsulas of the Mediterranean, has played a remarkable part in the history of southern Europe. From the earliest times it has been historically associated with Europe, and the story of geology illustrates the fitness of this connection. Western Europe and Northern Africa were once, in days long past, united together by bridges of continuous land, and this ancient continent, which we might call Europo-Libya, was perhaps inhabited by peoples of a homogeneous race, who were severed from one another when the ocean was let in and the Mediterranean assumed its present shape. Sicily, a remnant of the old land bridge, has always been for Italy a step to, or a step from, Africa while Spain needs no island to bridge her strait. Greece is a land of mountains and small valleys. It has few plains of even moderate size and no considerable rivers. It is therefore well adapted to be a country of separate communities, each protected against its neighbors by hilly barriers, and the history of the Greeks, a story of small independent states, could not have been wrought out in a land of dissimilar formation. The political history of all countries is in some measure under the influence of geography, but in Greece geography made itself preeminently felt, and fought along with other forces against the accomplishment of national unity. The islands formed states by themselves, but as seas, while like mountains they sever, may also, unlike mountains, unite. It was less difficult to form a sea than a land empire. In the same way, the hills prevented the development of a brisk land traffic, while, as we have seen, the broken character of the coast and the multitude of islands facilitated intercourse by water. There is no barrier to break the winds which sweep over the Euxine from the Asiatic continent towards the Greek shores and render Thrace a chilly land. Hence, the Greek climate has a certain severity and bracing quality, which promoted the vigor and energy of the people. Again, Greece is by no means a rich and fruitful country. It has few well-watered plains of large size. The cultivated valleys do not yield the due crop to be expected from the area. The soil is good for barley, but not rich enough for wheat to grow freely. Thus the tillers of the earth had hard work, and the nature of the land had consequences which tended to promote maritime enterprise. On one hand, richer lands beyond the seas attracted the adventurous, especially when the growth of the population began to press on the means of support. On the other hand, it ultimately became necessary to supplement home-grown corn by wheat imported from abroad. But if Demeter denied her highest favors, the vine and the olive grew abundantly in most parts of the country, and their cultivation was one of the chief features of ancient Greece. End of Introductory